1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Brandon Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me Dr. Tim Clarkson to tell us about his book titled A Mighty Fleet and the King's Power, The Isle of Man from 400 to 1265, um, just published by Berlin Publishers. And as you might expect from the title, uh, this book explores a really interesting story focused obviously on the Isle of Man. But for anyone who might think that this story is just about a small piece of land um, between what is now the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland, it's a much more complicated story, a much more interesting story that draws all sorts of connections um, with religion, with economics, with Um, identities and groups of people, linguistic connections and of course political ones to understand what was happening in and around this island during the time period. So Tim I'm so pleased that you've joined us to tell us all about it.
1: Thanks uh, very much Miranda. Thanks for having me on the the show.
2: Before we get into uh, the work you've done in the book could you maybe introduce yourself a bit to our audience and explain why you decided to write this book?
1: Sure yeah Um, well Um, I'm a historian uh, and an author, and uh, I write about the early medieval period, which uh, used to be kind of erroneously known as the the Dark Ages, which is a term that uh, most historians tend not to use now. Um, I live in northwest England, and I'm an independent researcher, so I'm not attached to a particular academic institution in any formal way. But uh, back in the 1990s, when I was working in a university library, I did part-time postgraduate research at the University of Manchester. And the result of that was an MPhil in archaeology and then a PhD in medieval history. And on the back of those qualifications, I decided to uh, put them to good use and uh, write books on the topics that I'd studied. Now, my latest book, the one you've mentioned, is the eighth that I've written, and uh, it looks at the the Isle of Man. Um, My first six books had a focus on Scotland. Now, the seventh book then moved south to England, and now with this one, number eight, I've left mainland Britain altogether to focus on this small island in the middle of the Irish Sea. I decided to write about the Isle of Man because it kept popping up on the horizon when I was writing my other books, I started to think that it must have been an important place in early medieval times. But I also realized that I didn't know a lot about it. So I decided to see what I could find out. And that was really how this new book came to be written.
2: I think that's quite fascinating because as we're going to see, I think from the interview, um, in a lot of ways, Scotland pops up on the horizon of the Isle of Man. So to think of it coming from the other way is um, actually quite a useful way in to this history. Um, but to give us some sort of context for it, obviously the book looks at a particular time period, as you said, traditionally and erroneously, probably called the Dark Ages. Can you tell us about this time period? How did you choose these sort of start and end dates?
1: The time period, uh, as you've said, runs from the 5th century AD or CE to the 13th so it's roughly from the year 400 up to 1265 the start date 400 is a fairly convenient marker for the beginning of the early medieval period because it was around this time that the western roman empire was entering its twilight phase the empire was basically starting to fall apart and its hold over the lands it had previously conquered and controlled was loosening. And that's when the people of those lands started to reassert their independence, or in some cases were taken over by a new set of conquerors. In the Irish Sea region, where my new book has its main focus, nearly 400 years of Roman power and influence was coming to an end. The Romans were withdrawing from the southern half of Britain which they had ruled pretty tightly as part of their vast empire and the natives whom we call the Britons were now having to organise things for themselves and across the sea in Ireland which had never been conquered by Rome fleets of pirates were sailing over to Britain to plunder those areas where Roman forces were no longer around to provide a secure defence. And obviously this kind of chaotic situation would affect somewhere like the Isle of Man, which sat in the middle of the sea between Britain and Ireland. So the early 5th century seemed like a useful starting point for my book. As for the end date 1265 in that year the last of the Norse kings of man died and in the following year 1266 the sprawling maritime kingdom which these kings had ruled since the time of their Viking ancestors also ceased to exist it was taken over first by Scotland and then by England so 1265 seemed to be a logical cutoff point the year when the last king died and when the manx viking age effectively came to an end
2: that gives us a very useful understanding of kind of what the changes we're going to see from that starting to end point um and you go further obviously than just telling us the start and end you categorise in the book this period of history as really having three phases, um, particularly on the political side. What are those three phases?
1: Yeah, um, I've put forward this idea of three phases in the the final chapter of the book, uh, where I set out my conclusions based on what I'd learned about this entire 800-year period of Manx history. So basically, I see this wide time span dividing into three parts, each defined by the cultural and political identity of whoever held power on man at the time. Now, the first of these phases, roughly spanning 200 years from 400 to 600, I see as being characterised by a struggle between two cultural groups, the Irish speaking the Gaelic language of Ireland and the Britons who spoke a Britonic language which was also spoken by the native population of mainland Britain. Now in my book I suggest that the result of this contest was that man fell under the control of a Britonic speaking elite who ruled a mixed population of indigenous Britons and Irish settlers. And so began the second historical phase, lasting about 300 years, with a short period in the 7th century when the English kingdom of Northumbria seems to have held power over man. And the third phase begins in the late 800s, when Viking settlers, people of Norwegian or Norse heritage, Started setting up colonies on Man. Their leaders turned the island into the main centre of royal power in a sea kingdom that stretched north into the Hebrides. This was the Norse phase of Manx history, and it lasted nearly 400 years. In it, we see Man taking a key role in the politics of the Irish Sea region and this third phase ends with the death of the last of the Norse kings of man in 1265
2: taking us right up to the end of the period. Thank you for outlining those three phases, um, which we're certainly going to get into. But before we do, I have one more kind of big picture question. Um, One of the reasons this time period for much of especially Northern Europe has been called the Dark Ages is because for a long time, we didn't have sources about it. We didn't have a way of understanding um, the artifacts, the archaeology that was left behind. And even in your first answer, you talked about how uh, you yourself coming into this didn't know a lot about the history of the Isle of Man. Similarly, as a reader coming to the book, it was not something I was hugely familiar with. Um, and so I was not surprised and very intrigued to find in the book that you talk about methodology and methodological challenges with sources to figure all of this out. So can you tell us a bit about what methodologies you use and what kinds of sources are available for this time period?
1: I tend to apply um, a fairly similar methodology with with all the books that I write. Um, I usually start by locating and collating and then analysing as much contemporary information as I can find. And by contemporary, I mean the primary source material written in medieval times like chronicles and collections of annals compiled in monasteries or stories about famous saints in this case those saints who supposedly or allegedly had connections with the isle of man now with most of my other books i did manage to find a fair amount of this kind of primary information but for the isle of man it was quite sparse So it took me quite a bit of searching to track the information down. The simple truth is, there isn't a lot of early medieval Manx history surviving from those times. So it was quite a challenge to find enough of it to fill a book of 70,000 words, which is what I'd promised my publisher at the very beginning. I eventually managed to pull various snippets and fragments together into something that looked like a coherent narrative. Now, these small pieces of information came from a variety of primary sources. The Welsh and Irish annals, the writings of the English monk Bede, and the Norse sagas. And towards the end of the book, when I got to the 11th century, I was able to use the Manx Chronicle otherwise known as the Chronicles of the Kings of Man and the Isles which is the only detailed primary source on the medieval history of man and my other method of obtaining information is to see what other historians have said on the topic not just those who are writing now in the 21st century or back in the 20th, but their predecessors in the 19th or even the 18th centuries. And this is a useful exercise in the case of a subject like early Manx history, which is full of gaps, because generations of historians have been coming up with interesting theories on how those gaps might be filled
2: nice combination of of things to figure this out um thank you for taking us through them i'd love to go now a bit i suppose chronologically through some of the history that you've uncovered using this variety of sources and perhaps it's a personal bias but i'm always quite interested in thinking about a place that i'm not as familiar with visualizing or conceiving of first the people and who actually lives there in order to get a sense of what that time was like so going to the earlier part of the time period the fifth and sixth centuries who lived on the isle of man
1: the population of man at that time seems to comprise two distinct communities indigenous britons and irish settlers both can be seen as belonging to a, a larger Celtic cultural group which encompassed all the indigenous peoples of Britain and Ireland but there were important differences between them. The main difference was language. The Irish settlers spoke Gaelic, an ancestral form not only of the Gaelic spoken in Ireland today but also ancestral to Scottish Gaelic. The Britons of Man spoke a different language, a Britonic language, which would have been similar to the ancestral languages of present day Wales, Cornwall and Brittany. It does seem likely that Britonic was the original language of Man and that Gaelic came later. The original inhabitants, whom we can call the the Manx Britons, had presumably been living there for hundreds if not thousands of years, from prehistoric times all the way through the Roman occupation of mainland Britain and then beyond into the 5th century. The English monk Bede, one of our main sources of information for the pre-Viking period, was in no doubt that man was a territory of the Britons, not a territory of the Irish he stated this in a book written in the early 700s but it's my belief that it was also true of the situation in the 600s and in the 500s all the way back to the 400s and even earlier we know from a number of memorial stones carved in the fifth and sixth centuries that there was a Gaelic-speaking community on man by then. Now, these stones have inscriptions in the Ogham alphabet, which originated in Ireland. In these inscriptions, we see names of people, names that look Irish, as well as specifically Gaelic words such as Mac, which means son of. So what I think we're seeing is two separate communities living on man in the 5th and 6th centuries. An older indigenous community of Britons and a more recently arrived community of Gaelic-speaking settlers from Ireland. I say separate, but this doesn't mean that the two groups couldn't coexist in a more or less peaceful way. There's no need to assume That they were naturally hostile to each other, even if we imagine them living in different areas of the island. The word I like to use here is bicultural, two cultural groups inhabiting one place at the same time and accepting each other's presence. I think the Isle of Man in the 5th and 6th centuries fits this description.
2: That's really quite interesting um, to think about the different communities that were there when they came, imagining to what extent they would have interacted, Um, but also thinking about this in the context of the Isle of Man's other neighbours, not just from Ireland, because as you've mentioned a little bit already, um, England is also involved here, though of course what we mean by England now and what existed as England then are not the same thing. So how does England kind of Come to this picture. How, how, On what are England's claims of overlordship over the Isle of Man based?
1: The first period of overlordship uh, on man by an English ruler seems to be as far back as the 7th century. Now, the ruler in question was Edwin, King of Northumbria, a large, powerful kingdom that at its greatest extent encompassed all of what is now northern england together with parts of southern scotland edwin was an ambitious king who held various neighboring kingdoms under his sway he was a mighty overlord using military power or the threat of it to force other kings to submit to his authority this meant That they had to send him regular tribute payments and they were obliged to lead their own armies to war under his overall command. Bede says that Edwin held the Isle of Man under his sway. Edwin no doubt coveted Man because it was strategically useful. It lay in the middle of the Irish Sea like a stepping-stone between Britain and Ireland. Its rulers at that time were, I believe, a royal dynasty of Britons, who may have had a family connection with the powerful kingdom of Gwynedd in North Wales. The rulers of man would have been under Edwin's overlordship, his vassals, like their fellow Britons in Gwynedd. Now after Edwin's death in 633, another strong Northumbrian king emerged, a man called Oswald, and he may have imposed overlordship on man in similar fashion to Edwin. Now Oswald, like Edwin, certainly held other lands under his sway, and so too did Oswald's brother Oswiu, who succeeded him, and also Oswiu's son, H. Frith. I think we see this fairly short period of Northumbrian control in man, finally ending when Edgefrith was killed in a battle in 685 in what is now Eastern Scotland. And then it's not really for another few hundred years at least before we really see any more English involvement on the Isle of Man.
2: Turning then to the other side of the island, Um, What was the relationship with Ireland like during this beginning time period?
1: As is often the case with the early history of the Isle of Man, this is a question that can't be answered with absolute certainty. The information we need simply isn't there in the primary sources, or rather in those texts that survive today. The Isle of Man usually gets just a handful of mentions, most of which are too brief and too vague to really tell us what was going on. Now, as far as relations with Ireland are concerned, the picture I'm seeing for the 5th, 6th and 7th centuries is one of conflict and rivalry, a contest between ambitious Irish kings on one side and their counterparts in Britain on the other a contest for control of the isle of man it was a struggle for overlordship in which the people who lived on the island were caught in the middle now in old irish texts we hear of a warlike king called boyton whose kingdom lay in northeast ireland in ulster boyton is said to have imposed his overlordship on man in the final quarter of the 6th century. But his hold on the island didn't last long, and it ended with his death in 581. And then, within a couple of years, the Ulster forces, who had occupied man, withdrew and sailed home. By targeting man, Euton seems to have been following in the footsteps of his father, who had apparently plundered the island during his own reign now the enemies with whom these two kings fought for control of man weren't other Irish kings and they didn't speak the Gaelic language in fact the Irish texts refer to them as foreigners or strangers and they make it clear that they were a different cultural group so we can be fairly sure that they were Britons, and I think they probably came from the Kingdom of Gwynedd in North Wales. One of the main territories of the Kings of Gwynedd was the island of Anglesey, which is visible from the Isle of Man on a clear day. And in the Welsh Annals, we find a reference to a military campaign, most likely an expedition by a King of Gwynedd in the year 584. Its target was man, and the date 584 looks close enough to the time when the Irish from Ulster lost control of man after the death of their mighty King Boyton. I think this is more than coincidence, and that what we are seeing is a change of overlordship, with man switching from a brief period of control by kings of Ulster, to a new period of control by kings from Gwynedd. This kind of change would have involved the use of force, a war between Irish warriors from Ulster and Britons from Gwynedd. And the next we hear of Irish involvement in Manx affairs is in the early 7th century, when it seems that the island fell under the overlordship the English kings of Northumbria, such as the ones we've mentioned already, Edwin, Oswald and Edgefrith. And it's at this time that we get hints of Irish kings challenging these Northumbrians for control of man. And then towards the end of the same century, in the year 682, we come across a curious piece of information in the Irish annals, telling us that a man called Mermin or Mervin was killed on man. Now Mervin isn't an Irish name, but it was used by the Britons, especially those of Wales. So why would the killing of a Briton on the Isle of Man get a mention in the Irish annals? I think the answer lies in a sequence of events reported by those same annals in the late 600s right through to the early 700s. Series of battles in Ireland in which forces of Britons were involved. Now, the annals don't say who these Britons were or where they came from, but I think they were probably an army from the Isle of Man. And I also think that this Mermin or Mervin who was killed on man in 682 was their king still ruling a mixed population of native Britons and Irish settlers. I tend to see him as a vassal of the Kings of Gwynedd, probably related in some way to their dynasty, but capable of pursuing his own ambitions and his own military campaigns. I suspect he was one of two or three Manx kings who waged war in Ireland over this period of 20 or 30 years fighting in alliance with or sometimes against various Irish kings and his soldiers no doubt plundered enemy territory in Ireland before sailing home to man with their loot
2: so we've got Gwyneth we've got Ireland we've got Northumbria we've got loot plunder sailing um, this all sounds like we need to obviously complicate things further by throwing in the Vikings. And yet, um, you illustrate a really interesting fact that I I personally wasn't expecting. Um, the Vikings definitely do turn up. Um, Ireland is certainly very aware of the Vikings. Scotland as well, etc. But the Vikings don't seem to conquer the Isle of Man even though they're doing all sorts of plunder, battles, armies, etc., seemingly literally everywhere around the Isle of Man except the Isle of Man. So why? what are the Vikings up to, and why are they not conquering the Isle of Man until, it seems, later than everyone else, not until the end of the ninth century?
1: Well, this is one of the most fascinating questions in early Manx history. It does need to be asked because one of the most surprising things about the Vikings in the Irish Sea region is, as you've alluded to, Miranda, why they didn't conquer man much earlier. Okay, we know these Scandinavian warriors, these Norsemen from Norway, say had sailed over in their fleets of longships to plunder all the lands around the Irish Sea from the late 700s onwards. And we also know that by the early 800s, they were making permanent settlements in Ireland and on the Isles of the Hebrides off the west coast of Scotland but we also know from archaeological evidence that they didn't start settling on man until much later in the 9th century. Why so late? Well a clear answer isn't given in any of our surviving primary sources so we have to try and puzzle it out for ourselves all we can do is muse on a number of possibilities and choose the one we prefer now one possible scenario is that the ninth century rulers of man presumably still a royal dynasty of britons managed to defend their island against viking raids and somehow managed to keep any viking settlers at a distance I'd imagine that this kind of stout defence would have relied on help from the kings of Gwynedd, especially if the Manx rulers were their vassals. Another possible scenario is that the Manx rulers had come to some kind of agreement with the Vikings, specifically with the Norse kings of Dublin, who were the most powerful Scandinavian colony in Ireland. So, maybe there was a peace treaty or alliance which meant that the Dublin Norse left the Isle of Man alone as long as the Manx helped them, perhaps by letting Viking fleets use the island's harbours as bases for raiding other lands around the Irish Sea. Whichever scenario we choose, the eventual outcome is the same. Vikings began to colonise man in the final quarter of the 9th century. This was a time when the Norse kings of Dublin were starting to pursue a much more aggressive policy of raiding and conquest. Their fleets and armies were launching devastating attacks on northern Britain, fighting battles against the Picts and Scots, and destroying big fortresses like Dumbarton, on the Clyde, and capturing large numbers of people to be sold as slaves. So maybe it should come as no surprise to us to find evidence of Viking settlers on man around this time of violence and invasion, because they may have come there as part of a planned conquest. And we know that these settlers on man didn't come directly from Norway they did have Norse ancestry but they actually came from Norse colonies that were already established in the Irish Sea region I think it's quite likely that their leaders came from the colonies in Ireland specifically from Dublin and that these leaders brought an invasion force to conquer man and to make it
0: today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Intriguing. I can imagine all sorts of television series that could be made in trying to figure this out um, and making up all sorts of things based on the evidence. Um, it would be absolutely fascinating just to, as you've laid out, kind of the possibilities are intriguing. And in a lot of ways that's similar to sort of my next question which is one of the sort of quotations one of the assumptions about the isle of man is oh that's the that's the haunt of pirates that's the kingdom of pirates now again we are in we're talking about the vikings so piracy is quite literally one of the things that they did this is not hugely far fetched but is it actually true
1: this idea of early medieval man as a pirate stronghold is something that came to my mind while doing the research for this book. It seemed to me that it was a big part of what made man such an important and attractive place throughout this entire period. Early medieval kings lived by raiding their enemies, usually the kings of neighbouring lands, who of course would then launch counter-raids in return. Now, the purpose of raids was to take plunder in the form of portable loot, like gold and silver objects or valuable livestock, such as beef cattle, or human captives who could be sold into slavery. And raiding also depleted your enemy's resources, making it harder for them to strike back in revenge. But launching a raid was expensive, and time-consuming, especially on land, where marching long distances required a lot of logistical planning, like food supplies for the soldiers, and knowing the locations of roads and tracks. But raiding from the sea was faster and easier, and certainly not as tiring for your soldiers as a long overland march. And if you could base your raiding fleet in the middle of the Irish Sea, then you could launch an attack on any of the surrounding lands, none of which would be very far away. And then you could bring all the plunder back home fairly quickly. And I think this is possibly what makes the Isle of Man such an attractive place, such a a valuable target for the rulers who were around in the early medieval period now in the 10th century we know that a viking warlord who almost certainly based his fleet on man was described in one primary text as a chief of pirates and then later in the 13th century the last of the norse kings of man promised to lend 10 ships to the king of Scotland and we know that these vessels were described in a text from the time as pirate ships and also I think that this idea of man as a perfect location from where you could launch attacks by sea in every direction north south east and west this idea of it being a kind of pirate lair can be projected backwards to the time before the vikings even as far back as the 6th and 7th centuries, when we know that man was coveted and desired by ambitious warrior kings from Ireland, Wales and Northumbria. And I think these kings saw control of man as a way of increasing their personal wealth through piracy, by seaborne raids and the use of naval power.
2: I mean even just imagining the map of where the isle of man is makes it clear just how attractive it is strategically um to do something like this and so i at least can imagine kind of why that would be attractive to vikings and why they would make use of it um and i imagine it's a lot of the same reasons that the isle of man comes to be part of the kingdom of the isles right it's it's a useful bit of territory to have with you can you tell us about the Kingdom of the Isles and the Isle of Man's place within it?
1: Yeah, the, um, one of the curious things about the geography of the Irish Sea region in uh, medieval times is that the Isle of Man was perceived as part of the Hebrides. Now, this group of islands scattered in the Atlantic waters along the west coast of Scotland was known to the Vikings as the Sudria the Southern Isles to distinguish them from the far northern isles or Nordrian of Orkney and Shetland. The Vikings not only regarded man as one of the Hebridean islands but as the most important one. It had good soil for farming and as we already said its location was perfect as a base for a raiding fleet. In the 10th century the southern isles the hebrides began to be seen not only as a geographical entity but as a political entity too as a maritime kingdom comprising a very large number of islands with man as the royal headquarters the main center of power in the irish annals and in the norse sagas the territory of this new kingdom was given a name It was simply called the Isles. Its kings tended to be relatives of the Norse royal dynasty of Dublin and some of them even ruled Dublin and the Isles at the same time. By the time we reach the late 11th century and the beginning of the 12th we find this kingdom of the Isles as a well-established and powerful political unit. Ruled by kings who were respected by their counterparts in Ireland, Scotland, England, and Norway. And man was always the key to this kingdom. It was always the most important isle of them all.
2: Intriguing. And of course. This is not a situation, as you've already described to us, that exists in isolation, right? The Isle of Man's not in the middle of the ocean all by itself, or even just part of the Kingdom of the Isles. There's all sorts of things happening in Ireland and Scotland and the Norse um, realms more broadly. And of course, in 1066, there is the Norman Conquest of England. Um, Now, obviously, this is the opposite side of England to where the Isle of Man actually is. To what extent? Did the Isle of Man or the people on it, the rulers there, notice the Normans turn up at Hastings? What what impact did the Norman Conquest have on the Isle of Man?
1: Well, when Duke William of Normandy became King William I of England in 1066, after the Battle of Hastings, as you have mentioned, he triggered a process of change that would affect not only his new English subjects, but also the people of Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. A little over a hundred years after the Battle of Hastings, a Norman army seized control of the great Norse stronghold of Dublin. And then Anglo Norman warlords, these were men from English noble families who had Norman ancestry, began to arrive in Ireland with their own forces, their own warbands. And they set themselves up as a new ruling elite, sometimes displacing the native Irish kings. Now the presence of this new Norman power in the Irish sea region was inevitably going to affect the Isle of Man in some fashion. But the Manx kings, the kings of the Isles, were pretty good at adapting to new situations and at weaving a skilful path through the tangled webs of international politics. They knew how to play what was essentially a real-life game of thrones, so sometimes they'd align themselves with an Anglo-Norman lord, or with one of the Norman kings of England who were descended from Duke William. But this pattern of alliances and allegiances was always fluid and unpredictable so in a nutshell the arrival of the normans added a new element to the existing pattern and the rulers of the isle of man adjusted their own political relationships accordingly
2: fascinating thank you for that um i admit when i read it i was sort of like wait, but that's far away. What what difference would it have made? Um, so it's interesting to hear kind of how that changes the complicated dynamics and, and in, in a lot of ways, the web that the Isle of Man is within and often the center of um, in that part of what is now obviously the United Kingdom. Um, but I suppose moving on chronologically, continuing our journey through time, I'd love to ask you to tell us a little bit about the Treaty of Perth and especially the sort of divergent views. There's sort of the English perspective on it, the Scottish perspective of it, and not similar to those two, the the Manx perspective on it. So can you take us through what this treaty was, what difference it made, and how the different actors saw
0: it?
1: Well, this treaty, which was an agreement between the kings of Scotland and Norway in 1266, uh, essentially signalled the end of the Kingdom of the Isles. It was designed really to put an end to the sort of long-running rivalry between Scotland and Norway over who would have overlordship of the Isles. Now, to the King of England, the Treaty of Perth probably didn't look like a good thing. It meant that the Isle of Man, a place with a lot of strategic value, was now part of the Kingdom of Scotland together with the the rest of the Hebrides, the Isles. Norway's historic claim on this group of islands, which had always been a remote, um, almost symbolic idea of overlordship dating back to the Viking Age, was permanently withdrawn by the treaty. All of this, of course, was a good result for Scotland, and maybe not so good for England, and on the Isle of Man the Treaty of Perth was seen by some part of the population as good and by others as fairly bad. Now the ones who thought it was good seemed to be quite happy to find themselves under direct Scottish rule but the others wanted their island to be independent again ...like it had been when it was the headquarters of the Kingdom of the Isles. Now this part of the Manx population had high hopes in 1275, nine years after the Treaty of Perth... ...when a prince of the old royal dynasty landed on Man. He declared that the kingship of the Isles was restored with himself as the new king... But his reign lasted only a few months. The King of Scotland regarded him as a rebel and a traitor and sent an army to chase him away. But this period of Scottish rule itself turned out to be quite short-lived. Fifteen years later, in 1290, the King of England took control of man except for one or two Scottish attempts to get it back, the island remained under the authority of the English crown, and that's still the situation today. So the Treaty of Perth merely delayed the English conquest of man, a conquest that was perhaps inevitable at some point, given that England did eventually take over all the lands around the Irish Sea.
2: Hmm. intriguing in a lot of ways I think um, that could be a starting point for a whole another book um, though perhaps people have written more on that because as you mentioned there's uh, there's there's more there's better sources as we get to the end of the time period um, and certainly something as consequential as the Treaty of Perth has a lot of historiography on it already um, but that does lead nicely into my final question for you um, as you mentioned at the beginning you've written quite a number of books Clearly, you've learned a lot from the process of writing this one. I've learned from reading it. Is there anything you might be working on next now that this book is done?
1: Um, I'm currently uh, involved in putting the word around uh, about my book on social media and through conversations like this one, Miranda. And uh, I'm sort of working uh, closely with uh, my publisher, Berlin up in Edinburgh to um, uh, promote... Uh, promote the book in in, in various uh, places. Now this summer um, I'm due to be preparing a new edition of my biography of Saint Columba which was uh, written some years ago and uh, I'm hoping that this new edition, the second edition will appear sometime in the first half of 2024 and uh, I also need to revive my blogging activity which, has been uh, strangely dormant for, for quite a while. I need to reactivate reactivate my uh, WordPress blog, which is called Shinkus. Um, so I think all in all, I'll probably have enough to keep me occupied, certainly for the rest of 2023.
2: <laughs> it sounds like it. Well, if listeners want to read the book we've been discussing, again, it's titled A Mighty Fleet and the King's Power, The Isle of Man from 1265," just published from Berlin. Tim Clarkson, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thanks so very much, Miranda, for uh, listening to, to what I had to say about my book.